You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, and you are listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm Lewis Kornfeld, my guest today. I'm very excited to talk to the great Michael Delaney. Thanks for being here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am really excited to talk to you. Uh, um, I was going through through old notes that I have from your class. I did your class 13 years ago. Wow. Level three class with you at the at the old UCB training center. I remember. Um uh, and I have one notebook that's all uh, mostly notes from your class and then a couple of notes from an Armando class that I was doing at the exact same time. And kind of preparing for this interview and looking through the notebook, it, it sort of occurred to me that you and Armando are kind of uh, um, very strongly in my DNA as an improviser. A lot of my my take on stuff and a lot of how I teach and a lot of what I'm about and what I'm aiming for for shows comes largely from eight weeks spent in your class of, of hearing a lot of your point of view and stuff. So I've been like really jazzed about getting to pick your brain and after 13 years. Cool. Well, I'm flattered. I hope that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I hope so too. Find out. I, we were just talking, uh, uh, right before we started recording, we'll get into, into some background stuff in a second, but, um, uh, you're big on on the truth of the situation. We were just talking about this for a second ago. You were talking about Horatio Sanz's podcast and and um, this amazing episode where they go to visit uh, the site of the Sharon Tate murders. That's right. And uh, Sharon Tate murder. Uh, um, yeah, and they they speak real truth to the situation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the long former's way. Yeah, I think you, you speak the truth first, and all the funny will follow. Yeah, I think. But if you're just trying to be funny in a haphazard way, uh, then, then I don't know, then that's just too much pressure. And also then the, the scene or the thing may not have, um, you know, may not have real heart. In a practical context, when you're on stage improvising, uh, um, uh, what does it mean to speak to the truth of that situation? Because I think that that's something that can be kind of a vast idea f- to digest sometimes. And and I think sometimes you can get, you can confuse speaking, speaking the truth with kind of hanging loose and being yourself in a way that sort of undermines the scene having shape to it or momentum to it or point of view to it. So, so, so when you're pointing to that, uh, um, uh, practically speaking, how does a person speak to the truth in their scene? I think it depends on the nature of the scene <clears throat> and what all's going on and what the elements are. Uh, I think sometimes it's being like perfectly honest and candid, like sort of as yourself and you're talking about your own opinions and things. And I think sometimes it's just sort of um, being objectively truthful about the thing. Like, you know, in an, uh, say in an invocation opening, people just kind of throw out a lot of truthful things about whatever the object is. And so I think if there's a subject, if there's a palpable subject that's being dealt with on stage, um, it's good to bombard it with those truths also including the opposite of the truth sometimes, mm-hmm. which is very, uh, like very Adam McKay, Will Ferrell to just always be, always be stating the, the inverse opposite of what's true mm-hmm. is one way of speaking truth to the thing. Um, but I think that speaking truth can also get muddled with calling out, which is one way 
to sort of speak to something, especially if something awkward or uncomfortable happens on stage or if someone re- refers to something that you don't know what it is, I think it's a good idea often to just call that out, mm-hmm. get it taken care of, get it out in the open, take care of it so we can move on, you know, so we can dust off our hands and move on with the scene. <clears throat> and, um, you know, but it, it, it's a funny thing, whether it's an empirical truth, a personal truth, uh, or some other th- thing, some new thing that was created on the stage that has its own truth, mm-hmm. that's complete fiction and made up, but the audience was in on the conception of, and execution of the thing, and we all buy in on it as something true. So, uh, you know, and truths are malleable and different. They're subjective. Um, sometimes they can be objective, but then we're dealing, I feel like objective truths are just fact. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and truth, truth is very malleable. So if I'm hearing you right, thinking about subjective truth, that seems to go hand in hand with a really committed point of view on state. So so owning yourself as a character uh, and truly playing through that character's mind and truly kind of exposing us to that character's sensibility would be one way of thinking about hitting the truth of that moment or hitting the, hitting the truth of that person's filter through which they're processing things. That is one of the things that happens, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. A lot of times I think it's, gosh, yeah, it depends on what phase of the scene you're in, too. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a big thing. And I, I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all way of playing. I think the different phases of, of a singular scene and the different phases of, of the Harold or whatever form it is that you're doing uh, dictates the way that, that we need to go about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, the way I attack an idea in the first 30 seconds of a scene is probably very different than the way I'm going to attack an idea in the, the last 30 seconds or, say, the first beat versus the last beat. Do you have a set way of doing that? When you're approaching, a, a, like, any given Harold, do you have a set way of attacking your first 30 seconds to the scene, or are you kind of open to to looking for something new or something different with each new show? I, I try to maximize the flexibility. Yeah. I think more flexible, less rigid. The, the, least, the less rigid you can be almost about, about nearly everything in the Herald, I think, is healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's healthy to be as flexible as possible. Now, uh, you, may not, you may not think so from watching my work. I may do the same kinds of things over and over. <clears throat> but when I step out, I try to try to be the empty vessel mm-hmm. a bit, even if I'm executing a, a, a strong, very pointed initiation. I still want to be in touch with that receptive side mm-hmm. and have my objective brain sort of, yeah, objectively look at what it is that I'm doing um, and try to make a choice as to the best way to to keep attacking that thing. And maybe it's very organic, maybe it's very stylized, maybe it's uh, <clears throat> sort of literally truthful and about something truthful that we can all relate to, like an, like an issue or a, or a shared uh, um, phenomenon of the, of the human condition. Or maybe it's some kooky thing that just got contri- you know, sort of contrived or found in the moment mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's just kind of off the wall, but the audience is buying into for whatever reason. And so now we've got this new truism and we all... 
hopefully the individual and the ensemble will chase after it. One of my favorite things about the Herald in particular, long form in general, but the Herald in particular, is that it, it variety is very helpful in a show. And a really honest, heartfelt, moving scene protects broader, sillier, more high concept stuff later on. That as an audience, when you're watching a show, it can be a real relief from having a kind of dominant comedy energy hitting you in the face all the time to suddenly see two people talking about something that feels like it actually matters to them and vice versa that if you're in a show that's kind of dominated by a sort of thoughtful spirit or or kind of a slowed down approach it's a huge relief to see someone attack with full commitment something that's just Uh kind of off the wall batshit crazy and 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 i don't know exactly where i'm going with this point uh um i rarely do yeah yes yeah (laughs) Uh, um, no, I, I think you're totally right about variety and how important variety is in the Herald for the individual to vary their own personal performance from scene to scene, week to week, year to year. Mm-hmm. Variety is good and healthy for all artists, mm-hmm. comedians, painters, writers, everybody. Um, and you talked about how you mentioned how variety can protect certain scenes and I think that it, it of of um, maybe playing realer, more honest scenes can protect the Harold when there's other sillier, maybe mm-hmm. broader stuff going on. But I would argue that that uh, sometimes playing those more earnest, more dramatic kind of scenes not only protect the other sillier stuff in the larger uh, structure of the Harold, but can actually be the scenes that foster that ridiculous broader thing. Yeah, sure. Playing real, I find gets you to discoveries that are of the, of a really original sort. And for me, that's the whole thing is finding the original idea that I've never seen or heard or played before. And it often takes playing real to find that thing. Then once it's found, we got to serve the thing. Mm. And if that thing implies some outrageous and bombastic behavior, then we're going to go for it. So I find that my scenes, my, when they're working, change and sh- really shift gears from being very real to very absurd very fast. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, uh, it seems to me like it's impossible to aim for a totally original idea or a totally spontaneous or totally surprising moment on stage. The, the best that you can do is set yourself up uh, uh, it's like the prophet Elijah showing up at Passover. The best you can do is pour the wine and open the door, but you can't kind of encourage this unknown thing to be on stage with you. You have to kind of set the circumstances to invite it and to allow it. Does that? Uh, I think so. Good habits, knowing what the good habits are, okay, and continuing on those good habits open that proverbial door, and so, hopefully Elijah himself will yeah. come through. What are tangible steps that you, Michael Delaney, take on stage to? to pour that wine for Elijah? The big thing I think is making the active choice mm-hmm. over the passive choice and not, not maybe not falling in love with your own ideas and, and maybe not being too funny, mm-hmm. too funny, too early, mm-hmm. I think promotes sameness instead of originality. If mm-hmm. people are being real funny, real early, they're probably being funny in a way they've been funny before. Mm-hmm. And what the Herald affords you is, to be funny in ways that you've never seen or, or ever been before. And I think that takes a little bit of time and investment 
just like when you sit down to write, you know, does that really original, awesome idea come out in the first 30 seconds that you sat sat down to write? Probably not. There's probably a little bit of a process or some thoughtfulness that went into it. And the beauty thing of the Herald is that whole process takes place. Yeah. It, it, the whole process takes uh, is there to see in the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what? So I want to backtrack for a second. To to so so when I'm when I'm saying protecting one scene by contrast with another scene, um, I think what I mean is, in my opinion, being a conscientious part of an ensemble. Part of it is recognizing, you know, the shape of the show as a whole and the energy of the show as a whole and recognizing like, okay, uh, things need to slow down now in order to reinvest people's attention into this so that we can build it back up. Or Mm -hmm. things need to become way more active or we Mm -hmm. need a really strong emotion. This, this, This show has kind of lacked emotional variety. There's a sameness to it. Or the show has had this aggressive attack energy and we need people to care about. Or the show just needs something so completely insane to mix it up. And what I think is it, it allows you as as a team member to be deliberate in your choices and to not just set yourself up for success by coming on out with a killer idea that you know is going to going to uh, win laughs mm. but you're able to protect choices that are already made on stage like here's a scene that's playing out right now that is amazingly thoughtful not the funniest thing in the world and a way that I can protect this scene is to come on out with an energy that almost it's like sleight of hand it pulls the audience's attention to this other bonkers thing yeah um, so that when they return to this slowed down scene they appreciate and love and see it for its value and don't worry about maybe a show getting away from its ensemble, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So so I, for me, this has been on my mind a lot recently of being, being as deliberate as possible, being as purposeful as possible with the moves that you make in a show within your own scene and also for the show as a whole. And with that sense of purposefulness, not dictating the direction that the whole thing should be going, but instead tending to the experience so that you're creating the most entertaining experience possible and setting yourself up for setting yourself up for the highest probability of some interesting discovery occurring for somebody in the cast. Mm. Long sentence. (laughs) Um, I, I like what you're saying. I think... I think that's a real skill and a real trick is to be be in the Herald and be a, a a real active participant in the Herald and at the same time have the coach mindset mm-hmm. of I'm also part of my brain is is on the sideline or like a general up on the hill looking down at the battle. You're a soldier and a general at the same time. You're in the fray. And if you're a soldier in the fray, it's hard to be able to have that. 360 degree view and see what's really going on and what does this Harold need? Um, and if, 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 if a player can do both those things, I think that makes them closer to being a top player. Yeah. Yeah. Have you gotten better at that over time? Were you good no. at that to begin with? No, I used to be really good at it. You've gotten worse at that over time? I think I've gotten worse. I think it's because of, honestly, because of memory. Yeah. Yeah. There's that split second where I know... I'll feel like, oh, uh, this act is over. We'll be doing a half an hour act, you know, act with the stepfathers. And I'll feel that it's over. And I know it's time for callbacks. And um, I'll try to bring up 
bring to mind and sometimes just plumb forget yeah. what my first beat was. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it is memory. Um, and also getting older, you know, it's not necessarily good for comedy. And yeah. having kids, I feel like once you have a child, it makes you a less interesting, less funny improviser. At least I was. Really? Yeah, because you start caring about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You can't, you can't, you can't be very thoughtful and care about stuff and also have like a good cynical point of view about things at the same time. You know, every young man has a puppy stomper in him. Yeah. And when you're very young, of a young boy, you think that uh, uh, puppy stomping is funny. Yeah. And the older you get, the less funny it is to stomp on puppies. Yeah. And then you get your own puppy, your own little creature. Yeah. Your own offspring. And uh, all the baby killing scenes are just aren't as funny, and so and and, it, and that makes me duller. It makes me duller because I think now think less stuff is funny. Well, maybe, but but isn't there also kind of an interesting thing there too? Of like, well, now you have the opportunity to find other kinds of things funny. It's like when you're young, ve- vegetables taste like shit, but the older you get, your taste buds change and you develop a sensitivity to That's enjoy true. certain new flavors. Because so the, you taste, see it that because way the taste where... buds have been dulled from so much so much smoke and ice and. Yeah. Crap. And I guess that's one way of, of thinking part about of, it. I think that's part of why yeah. stuff starts to taste good. It's because our taste buds basically wear down. Yeah. My mother-in-law, before she died, was just eating everything. She was just taking random food, broccoli and peanut butter and bread just shit and just mixing it together and eating it happily. Yeah. yeah. But is it maybe, I mean, that could be just like a, uh, 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 like the comfort and security and like security of just having matter to eat. Yeah. I mean, well, because like, you know, that feeling. No, when she it's wasn't like, a shover. No, nah, no. Yeah. Kind of an ascetic. I don't know. Okay. Well, she was a chain smoker. Yeah. Oh, well, that would definitely do it. Yeah. I think it just sanded down Burns her tongue. Burns everything out. Yeah. 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 That's something I'm, I'm in my mid thirties now. And, uh, like I've started, oh, you have a long to, way to fall. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know, yeah, I know. No. But like, I, I've also like, you know, I, I'm now at the point where I'm teaching people who were, uh, who were, uh, born when I started improvising or, or, yeah. you know, and, and the thought has been on my mind about like aging in comedy, you know, comedy itself doesn't, it, it's comedy is interesting because the spirit of comedy kind of lives on. But the particulars of it don't age well at all, except for a handful of of examples. But, you know, you lose relevancy with your comedy pretty quickly or something that's like really sharp. Like, you know, it's arguable there are certain things that still like Monty Python is still funny as hell. SCTV is still funny as hell. But there's a lot of like yesterday's generation comedy that just kind of feels tone deaf now. Now those shows are still funny. Yeah. But when I watch those guys who are who are the closest thing I have to heroes, they're they're not as funny. Yeah. Individually, is it, you is mean? it like, me who changed, or yeah. is it that? No. When I when you see um, the Python, I saw the Python reunion. Yeah. And sure, they're doing older material. Had those guys written new? new material maybe in a new medium i think that's part of it i think as you get older you gotta shift your media sometimes shift mediums and shift material because i think some of the some of the foolishness that young people engage in just doesn't come off well from older people yeah when when that same guy gets old and he does that it's not that cute and funny yeah you you wear it well as a young man and I think you wear comedy less well as you age if you don't modify. Yeah. Look at Steve Martin. Look at the arc of his career. 
and his early movies. Look at Woody. They're early movies, very farcical, very sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Annie Hall is practically a Harold. The jerk is completely stupid and idiotic. And then as Steve Martin gets older, and he's a guy who appears to be a little older than he is. He's got that white hair, you know. And as he got older, he started doing more and more, for lack of a better word, sophisticated kind of stuff, more grown-up stuff. Mm-hmm. Whether it's better or not, I honestly don't think so. I think the jerk... It's maybe, tough to beat. It's tough to beat. Yeah. Of all Steve Martin movies, that yeah. one's like still as funny as anything he's done. Yeah. But um, yeah, as you get old, it is an issue. I don't really care. I mean, in the Harold, the Harold's all in the mostly in the mind's eye anyway. Yeah. So you know you got adults playing children and, and you know playing all kinds of outrageous characters, and it it mostly occurs in the audience's head. But you know when it's sketch. And you got, you know, 50-year-old guys playing kids. That, that's, not, that's not the best. Well, it's like that thing when you see, like, older Groucho Marx putting on the wig. When, when you get to the, when, when they started slapping a wig on him and you suddenly become really aware of, of yep. like, oh, this guy's in his, like, late 50s now and, and is still chasing these women around. And, and there's something kind of um, a, a little bit, like... We don't buy it as much. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. And I... I and if you're not great, it can look quite sad. Yeah, Groucho was. A, I think I think Groucho is a genius. Yeah, um, but he, it, even he had to make the transition. He had to grow a real mustache at a certain point. He did finally grow it, but he had to, and he had to stop yeah. wearing wigs too. He had to be bald and grow a mustache. There comes a point where you look too old to continue with this shtick. It just doesn't hold up anymore. I didn't know he had a wax mustache. My mother had to tell me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I want to. Uh, no, it's Greek, grease paint. It's grease paint. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, uh, his his thing. When he was younger, uh, uh, he got a lot of shit for wearing the grease paint mustache on stage. They slapped it on him to make him look older, and he got a lot of shit. They asked him to grow a real mustache because nobody would believe his grease paint mustache. And then when he became older and was hosting, uh, you bet your life, mm-hmm. they gave him a lot of shit for having a real mustache because nobody would like him without the grease paint mustache. Uh. So yeah, um, um, I, I this I want to talk for a second about. Um, like adapting your medium or adapting your style as you go. Mm. I heard an interview that you did a few years back with John Frusciante and Will Hines, um, where you said, you said a couple of things that, that I related to pretty strongly and I, I might be kind of misquoting you on this, so please correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but you were talking about, uh, you and Andy Secunda and, and you had said something that Secunda was a very ambitious guy and that you were an artistically ambitious person, that your career has been dominated by artistic ambitions and, and artistic adaptability. Am I getting that right? Or am I like, off I the think mark that's with right. It? I don't think it's untrue about Secunda. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe Secunda has more ambitions in the traditional and and healthy ambitions that most people have. Like, yeah. You know, earning a decent amount of money. Sure. I never cared about. And yeah. so, hence, I never did. What do you care about? Because, like, okay, so I forgot to set up any bio for anybody listening who doesn't know you, but you can easily Google any of this stuff. You've been improvising in New York. Uh, you were improvising before you were in New York, but you were at Ground Zero of comedy and Ground Zero of improv comedy in the city. You were for at the, the Upright Citizens the impro- Brigade. For the improv scene, yeah. For the improv scene. You were there before the first UCB theater when it was back at Solo Arts, maybe yeah. even before that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and you've been here the entire time. You you are yeah. a founding member of two of the most legendary groups in in, in improv history, the Swarm and the Stepfathers. Um 
you have one of the most respected voices in in the art form, certainly on the East Coast, and I'm sure way beyond that. Thanks, Lewis. Yeah, you're welcome. So, so, and what? This is a weird question. Well, no, it's not a weird question. What what ambitions drive you to to stay a committed improviser who's who's remained as an improviser for that long and seen it grow in the way that it's grown, you said money is not terribly important to you. So, so where do your ambitions lie? I want to um, do stuff that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> that was really the main thing to be surrounded by people who I thought were great and to do work that I think is great. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> I just got really interested in the improv thing. I, I was doing, you know, like sketch and improv and theater and, and, uh, I really wanted to take the improv further and just find out about it. It was a kind of a new art form. It was certainly new for me and I think it was pretty new for the public. And, uh, I just wanted to do, do it great, really do it great. And to do, um, you know, improv is kind of a, a thing that you do for free. You can make small amounts of money doing it. But I think, um, but not really, not for just doing the thing a lot and practicing it. And um, I don't know. I think that's it. I just wanted to be, try to be the best. Has, so what, how is the, so the drive to be great at it and to be surrounded by the best people and to do the best work that you possibly can, how have the forms that that drive has taken changed since beginning as an improviser uh, uh, to now being like uh, uh, having like emeritus status in the community and, and basically being like a, uh, like basically you're a guru figure, you know, to many, many improvisers. So I assume the drive is still the same of wanting to do the best work that you can do. So I guess, I guess two questions. What is, what does that mean to you? What do you identify as the exciting best work that, what do you see that really catches you and what, what do you what do you want to do and I guess over time how has that changed what are the different formats that that's taken for you broad questions I apologize I you know it's hard to pin it down why you like something so much I think if I knew why I like things more maybe I would make more things that I like yeah because um, I don't like all the things I create um, Gee, what was the question? <laughs> uh, 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 well, I guess the first part. What, what do you? What when you see something that makes you yeah. want to try harder? What do? You, is there any particular set of things that you notice that make you that make you that make you want to do that work? Or is it like what, what kind of work excites you? I guess is another is another way to put it. It's the originality thing. Yeah, I'm just really attracted to new original stuff of course stuff that's funny if i see a a scene or a show that smacks of stuff that's been done before or is somehow redundant of something i've seen i don't hold it against that thing i'll I'll, you know if it's fun and enjoyable it's fun and enjoyable but as it happens the stuff that's the most fun and enjoyable to me ends up being the stuff that's the most original. When I see that show that I say, wow, that was fucking great. I haven't seen anything like that. that that's what I say. I haven't seen anything like that. I've never seen anything quite like that mm-hmm. is what I often end up saying when I leave a show of really high quality mm-hmm. that was really exciting. Um, and you mentioned medium, and I mentioned medium. You have to change mediums. And for me, the, 
those changes came mostly through opportunity. Um, I had a real hard time as an actor. I'm a, just a terrible failure as an actor. I never could get parts. I couldn't get auditions. I looked too boyish, too skinny and fat at the same time, mm. just not in the right shape. I wasn't the right shape or mold for regular acting. Mm. Commercial acting, a real disaster. Theatrical acting, didn't really get to... I didn't get to flourish in my full failness, failure, because I, I couldn't get any auditions. If I got, could have got more auditions, I could have been not cast in more plays, but instead I ended up never getting cast in any plays because mm-hmm. I couldn't even get the auditions. Is this for lack of trying or, or just like shit luck? It was just, I think, a combination of things, shitty luck and just not understanding how the business works uh-huh. and how I'm supposed to conduct myself to get, in, to get in in the business because all I cared about was quality, yeah. nothing about working it yeah, yeah. and getting there. And um, all we did, all I did was what I wanted to do. Oh, that's a big thing. That's why I failed so bad. All I do is what I want to do. Uh-huh. I don't do stuff that I don't want to do. And if it means I don't want to get up today, I don't get up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll get up. I'll, I'll wake up. But if I don't want to do anything, I'm not going to do anything. And uh, that's not true. I never do that. I just don't want to do. Uh, yeah, I do. I do sometimes do nothing, but it's not like I'm blowing things off. But, you know, I saw other people who were making it, and I saw certain hoops that they had to jump through, and I knew I don't want to jump. I'm never going to jump through those hoops, and I don't want to jump through those fucking hoops. And if it means that I end up, you know, with dirty pants my whole life, then, then I have dirty pants. Mm-hmm. I don't care. And, but I love to improvise, love the gang, you know, love creating with, with my teammates, et cetera, and the, the whole, you know, the improv scene kind of grew up around me w- when I was here and the opportunity knocked. I could do teaching to make money. So like, yeah, I'll teach. And then the Conan guys knew me from ASCAT and started hiring me on Conan. So then I had to, then I did start getting real acting gigs. Those are real. I was at, I did the Conan show a couple hundred times and I had to go in and learn my lines and put on my costume and get into makeup and prepare and do all that stuff. <clears throat> and I, I, I learned a lot there, and I, I really learned how to direct sketch from a variety of people, uh, mostly from being around the Upright Citizens Brigade, spending a lot of time around those guys. Yes, training. Yes, yes, having them as my teacher and my director for my shows and classes. Uh, also, I was their tech guy for a while, and then we became friends, and just a lot of absorption, mm-hmm. you know, and working with Ian Roberts. When you work closely with a director, you start, you start copying to the way they think. Mm-hmm. And a, there's a certain style of thinking that the Herald promotes and there's a certain style of thinking that the UCB promotes. And I, I got into that thinking style and doing, these, doing different mediums strengthen your other mediums. Doing all that TV work, which then turned into a little bit of movie work too and other TV stuff too besides Conan. But that was the main thing for about 10 years doing all this on-camera stuff. And the playback would teach me things about myself, just simple things, small technical things. Um, and when shooting, if I could see, if we were doing a pre-tape and I could see the playback, see a take, I could was really able to make adjustments to make the, the next take better. And sometimes it's just a matter of turning your head a certain way mm-hmm. or, or to, um, saying something a little louder or a little softer. Um, and so doing these other media, when I would come back to the Herald from directing a sketch show, 
or acting in a bunch of sketches, it just strengthens you as, as a Harold player. Mm-hmm. Everything you do in life, you bring back to the Harold and it strengthens you. And I think that includes all art forms, music and visual art. Yeah. I, I want to backtrack for one second. I, I, I want to talk about the Harold in detail in just a moment, but I, this is one, one place where I, I feel like you and I are cut from a, a, a similar cloth. Um, uh, I have been lucky enough to make my living teaching improv for, for 10 or 11 years. And it's pretty much all I want to do. And do you have I, dirty pants. I got dirty pants. It's I a have sweet not, living. It's a good living. I've not washed my pants in two weeks. <laughs> they don't smell bad, so I'm not going to do no, anything about it. No, no, they don't smell. They're, they're, just they're, little, they're just a little, just a little dingy. dirty. Yeah. A little dingy. Um, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, I don't feel any like internal push to like every now and again, I'll think about like, this isn't a career. It's not like you should be pushing harder for industry stuff or, or, you know, you got to like grow the hell up. But if I'm being really honest, those thoughts only come from feeling like I should be doing it. They don't really come from a thing of like, it, it just, it's something that's not interesting to me at all. That's somebody else's trip. Yeah. Yeah. So like every no, I now think and again, we, I think we live like kings, to be honest. Yeah, kings in the Middle Ages that they probably had dirty robes. Way better, I'm sure that they did. We live w- way little, better than kings in the Middle Ages. Yeah, we do. Yeah, they yeah. had shit lives, real bad lives, and those were the best lives of anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I. It, it's interesting because sometimes I will. F- I don't know if I feel bad about it or if I feel like I should feel bad about it or should feel like... About the filthy conditions of middle-aged kings? Yeah. Yeah. Just like, can I go back? Could I do something for these people? If we could go back, I would start start a a charity. Do you you know what I mean, though? Like, I'll have like these periodic moments where it will occur to me of like, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I I shut the fuck up and stop belly aching. And I like, I've always been the kind of person to kind of trust that like, when something feels right, that's where I should be. And that's what I should be doing. And when something doesn't feel right, eh, I, I, I can't work up enthusiasm for it. Well, you know, I, maybe it's hokey, but you know, the whole thing of doing what you love and all that. And yeah, if you do what you love, it doesn't, then you're set. You're yeah. gold. Yeah. Let's talk about the Harold for a second. So, okay. so taking my a, favorite subject, taking a break from it and doing all this other stuff and working in other media. No, there, yeah, those breaks though aren't breaks though. It's uh, concurrent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, and, but then that strengthens your, that strength is everything that you bring to the house. Absolutely. Here's okay. So a, a couple of things. I, when I did your class, I found it really hard and very. You made me nervous as hell. Really? Yeah. Um, well, you, you're getting me back. This podcast is making me nervous. Is that true? Is that I get. Yeah, I'm sweating. Really? Yeah, podcasts are nerve wracking. Well, you know, because it, it part part of it is you know your words are. Be, now you have to like live up to the shit that you say. But part of it is just like having a microphone stuck in your face really makes it. You're trying to to create the feel of a conversation, but it's really not a conversation. You feel, you're you're aiming it towards an audience, and it kind of like I, I can only see a third a of your face. Yeah. Right now. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, uh, your class made me nervous. But okay, here's a couple of things that I really enjoyed about it. Um, the class felt different to me than a lot of my other exposure in my early days when I was doing stuff at UCB and being coached a lot by people around UCB, 
you struck me as having a slightly different point of view on stuff. The stuff that you were prioritizing felt different. And, and where, where with other coaches, I would feel like a failure because I just wasn't smart enough or fast enough to figure out what the hell the funniest thing was and how to, how to, how to heighten it immediately. In your class, the challenge was I'm not being myself. I'm not being honest. I'm not being as smart as I could be. I'm not being as thoughtful as I could be, which is a challenge that I really dug. But the other thing that I thought set you apart, every single coach I had my first year of improvising was teaching us the Herald, and every single one of them to a man said, nobody likes the Herald. Nobody wants to do the Herald. You have to do a thousand of them before you get good enough to move past it. And, and I remember very distinctly you not being cut from that cloth. You, you had respect for the form and clearly loved the form and clearly were trying to hold people in your class to a really high standard of appreciation for the form and to treat it as, as something that asked of you to bring the best that you had to offer. And I, I, it makes me so happy to talk to you and hear you still be kind of reverent about the form and still love the form and still come back to it all the time. What is it about the form that keeps you coming back for 20 years? Uh, <clears throat> well, the Herald, it's a really open, it's an open-ended form. And by that, I mean, I guess that it's, it's a little similar to like cinema, movies. Like, mm-hmm. what is a movie? Mm-hmm. A lot of things can be a movie. A documentary can, um, a narrative movie can, a historical thing can, some experimental weird thing. Like it, it, it's, it's pretty endless of what things can be a movie. And I feel the same way about the Herald. It's so different. Every, every generation and every group has their own way of interpreting and executing the Herald. And it can do so many different things. The way cinema can do a lot of things. And you can take it as far as you want to take it. If you're political then your movie's political. Mm. If all you care about is entertainment and clowning around, your movie can be clowning around. All this is true about the Herald, too. You know, as we were talking, I was talking to Evan before about, you know, when the Herald started, originated, it was very political, highly politicized. It was practiced completely differently. The three-beat Herald is a development which the Herald took on. I see all long form as Herald. I see ASCAD and... Avente and Monocene and all those things is different faces of Harold. They're mm-hmm. all reflections of Harold. And Harold is, um, it's like Zen, man. It, uh, it, it, they say Zen, you know, it's like a mirror. Um, it, it refuses nothing. It accepts all. Harold accepts all. It refuses nothing. It, it devours everything. Harold eats everything. Whatever kind of artist you are, including ones that you and me may not particularly care for, the Herald is there for them to do their shitty art the way they want to do it. And we have our art that we think is good or not, and we do it the way we want to do it. I think the Herald, uh, again, flexible, incredibly flexible. Um, it'll tolerate, the Herald can, will tolerate anything. And it loves to be changed. If you want to turn it around and flip it upside down and do it backwards and do it wrong, Harold will take it. It'll take it. it. It takes all comers, like the mirror that refuses nothing and reflects all. Um, and in it, it's just, you, you play. And then, uh, talking about these other mediums, when it comes to directing a sketch show, writing a sketch show, trying to write a script, the Herald, um, it affects you and it informs you and it'll guide you on those things. And uh, on big picture and small picture, you know, if you're stuck, if I'm ever stuck writing, I do a pattern game. Mm-hmm. Just pattern game the shit out of it 
And then boom, I've got like 30 ideas or I'm writing a thing. And if I'm stuck on, on describing, I'm writing a nonfiction thing. And, and if I'm stuck on describing something, uh, I've actually done this, done an invocation where you invoke the thing and say, it is this and it is that and it is that. And that includes all of its opposites. And so then before I know it, I've got like, I've written down 40 things about this thing that I didn't, that I wasn't aware, that I knew, but wasn't aware of before I did that little exercise. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I read that in Truth and Comedy long ago, how Mike Myers said, oh, the Herald helps him in his writing, and it's something he always goes back to. And I was like, fuck, well, how do you do that? So all the while I've been working on the Herald, I, I, it's always been in my mind of, oh, this thing is a tool. This is a tool that you can go back to and use like a tool, like a hammer mm-hmm. to, to get stuff done. Or it's another kind of tool that's this vast, huge thing that's this bubble that you can live inside with all your buddies and do art and do theater and people will come and laugh and yeah. all that. And, um, you know, then the nuts and bolts of teaching it is all wrapped up with real acting, real acting and uh, communicating. You know, acting on the stage is mostly about the other, you and the, the other per, these other people really communicating working things out between you, the struggles, whether they're comedic or dramatic or whatever, and the audience, you know, bearing witness to all that. I think the Herald took audience participation way, way farther than short form ever could. Short form audience participation is about like bringing the audience members up on stage, constantly going to the audience and having them have that opportunity to shout out and feel like they're involved because we yanked them up on stage to be a puppet or to be the arms of another person and all that stuff went away. And I think that the kind of audience participation where the audience sits there and just watches as an audience member, they are participating because we're taking cues off of them. If you and I are just doing a straight scene in the Herald then the whole audience bursts into laughter as happens a lot when I didn't mean to say anything funny, but they gleaned, they saw something between you and we're doing a scene. They see something between us and they all respond like that. That's telling us something. If they hadn't laughed, you and I probably would have carried on that scene the way we were going. Mm. But if a moment comes that neither one of us are intending to be funny and the audience sees it as funny as a collective and they respond, that's audience participation. That's them saying, yes, we like that. Go that way. And if everybody likes it and it's not something that's gratuitous or shameful, I'm going to go that way. Uh, If it's shameful, I'll probably go that way anyway. (laughs) But I try to avoid stuff that's too gratuitously blue or yeah. anything like that. I, that stuff just never interested me or I thought was particularly funny. So, I don't know, all this reverence stuff. Uh, when you do something for a long time and it works for you, you know, you start to love it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it, it, it fosters a way of thinking that you're able to constantly go back back to there's a discipline to the way of thinking that not only unlocks a certain amount of creativity but but hands you the keys to this process that is kind of constantly unfolding it it, by by being immersed in the process you're able to continually make new new discoveries about stuff that maybe you already know and didn't realize that you knew or stuff that was coming together in your mind in a way that you never realized was coming together in that particular way which i imagine keeps you very fresh I think so. And I think when I started working with the UCB and, and the, all the Del Close disciples, I noticed something about their style of play that was different than the way me and my friends were playing. 
and we made the adjustment and copped to that mode of play and it it changed our work overnight and we thought we were pretty damn good and we were we were funny me and me and billy merritt and um dave blumenfeld and uh greg madera and my wife linda we're in a group called lost footage and then after i saw the the ucb playing uh improvising i they do this thing where they sort of give it away and aren't endeavoring to be funny. I, I find most improvisers play in a kind of a funny way, mm-hmm. where they act funnily. And I watched the UCB, and I didn't see anyone acting funnily. I saw them acting until shit got discovered. And then they made discoveries, and then the acting got outrageous. And the ideas got really absurd and really heightened. Um, but the performances were still believable, even though the ideas were getting... Really absurd, really insane. What was the difference with your early group when you were with Billy Merritt and, and Dave? Uh, um, were you guys lacking the acting chops with it? Were you going right for the comedy energy? I think so. I think we were too. I think we were being too entertaining. Yeah, and trying to be too entertaining, and maybe trying a little too hard. Yeah, and you know the focus on game. Yeah, uh, in this style of game um, was really diff- was a bit different um, and a bit new. It, it was mostly the style that playing uh, really real and communicating with each other in a, a really real way that's the way we communicate on the streets. And for me, that's something that is a, a mode to be played in in the discovery phase of the scene in the absence of a premise. Now, if someone has a premise or a schema or an idea, a, 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 a real idea that's going to propel the scene or a, or a damn funny idea that came out of the opening or somewhere else, I think execute it. And if, if it means play the scene big and broad or however it needs to be played or play a big character, then play a big character. But there's a lot of times in the Herald where that doesn't happen, where it's time to edit. And I don't have a big idea and I don't have a big character, but I'm going to do something relevant to the suggestion of the opening and uh, or whatever, just or anything, if my mind has gone blank, which it often does, just step out and improvise anything. And I think that's the time to be really fucking real and to talk to each other the way you and I are talking now. Um, but one has to be careful not to get into what I call security cam theater, mm-hmm. which is when the scene goes on and on and we talk to each other the way you and I are talking that's that's not Harold theater. That's just security cam theater. Mm-hmm. So I remember once Dell saying, uh, yeah, he says in this interview uh, how he sometimes recommends people play like a bunch of uh, raving paranoids. Yeah, 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 yeah. and because nothing anyone says is on means anything on just face value. Right. It's always oh, someone says something is oh. What does that mean? Something, it all, everything means a little more. So, yeah, when you're improvising, yes, we're talking like we really do, but both of us are looking really closely at what the other one's saying and what does that mean for the both of us and what does that mean in terms of us identifying what we call at UCB an unusual thing, pursuing that unusual thing. Hopefully it crystallizes into a game. We play out the patterns of the game. It's all about servitude and acting. You get a script, you serve the script. Someone hires me to direct I got to serve these people. It's their show. They wrote it. They want me to direct it. I serve them. I, I came into acting as a, as a straight actor from scripts. I didn't improvise until I was a few years in. So for me, it was all about servitude, 
all about um, serving the script, serving the character. Then you start improvising. I made up the character. I still got to serve the character. Now, when we're improvising, an unusual thing comes up. Maybe we decide what it is. Maybe the audience decided. We're having a regular scene perfectly normal. And all of a sudden, they laugh at something I didn't even think was funny. And I might agree with them. I might notice what they laughed at and said, yeah, that is funny. I'm going to serve that idea. Now, so hitherto, we've been playing super real. But once a discovery gets made, we've got to then feel what is, what is that thing? What's the nature of that unusual thing? And what's the best way to serve it? And now we might start playing in a broader, more exaggerated way or even more of a hyper real way. But something's going to heighten, whether it's the information or the sequence of events of the scene or it's the behavior the characters are exhibiting in the scene. But I find in the, in the absence of a premise, playing really fucking real and talking to each other one on one and stripping it away. Stop being interesting, stop being funny, and just fucking communicate and you will, until you come up with that idea that's worth it. And once you get the idea that's worth it, then attack it however it needs to be attacked. If I got to attack it like a clown, I'll go after it like a clown. If I got to attack it smart or uh, minimalistic, if I got to go after it like Stephen Wright, I'll go after it like Stephen Wright. If I got to go after it like, you know, Zero Mistel, who's over the top, fucking actor then I'll go after it that way. Or, or being true to the... <clears throat> so then there's the performance mode and then there's the, the information in the scene also. I like it when the scenes are... When we find an unusual thing that's sort of script-worthy. We tend to like that at UCB because I love playing real. I love playing really absurd ideas, but being able to play real too. Can you give me an example of a script-worthy unusual idea? Uh, go to ASCAT. Yeah. yeah, they do them all the time. Uh, yeah, I think Ian Roberts is the that style of actor, and the UCB four have a style where they come up with very script worthy ideas. In fact, uh, <clears throat> the third season of the UCB TV show was um, largely uh, the, the third season of their sketch show. the The premises came out largely out of ASCAT. Mm-hmm. I think I was in the scene. I think I was in the scene with Ian where he first improvised the poo stick. Oh, okay which was an ASCAT scene. And the, the, the sketch they ended up doing on the show was totally different than the, than the scene in, in ASCAT, except for that, that one unusual thing, mm-hmm. that there's this concept of a poo stick, which will ward off. There's a logic to it. There's a truth to it. I mean, if you're some guy who just wants to just go off on the streets, just beat the shit out of some asshole... And you pick somebody and he's got a poo stick, you're going to move on to the next guy. Yeah. Yeah. There's truth there. Yeah. Yeah. It's because there was such a funny, crystalline, silly truth, it, uh, it was sketchworthy. Here's something that, um, that I find very interesting because I, one thing that you will see in classes a lot, it, uh, um, people, will oftentimes begin to be nervous that there isn't that unusual thing to their scene. And so they'll bail on the realism that they created and, and suddenly interject some kind of insane problem. For That's no what I call reason. playing funnily. Yeah. Um, 
or 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 they'll be playing in a very realistic style. We'll be holding it patiently, not pushing anything, not forcing an agenda onto it. But over time, the scene just begins to sort of deflate. It, it, it takes on this the security cam feeling. Yeah, I've been there many times. I, maybe, maybe that's the time to play funnily. Maybe it is. Yeah, you gave it the college try. Yeah. It's not working, and now. You just got to dig deep and entertain them till you get uh, till someone edits and move on to the next thing. It's something uh, like <clears throat> depending on what what um, kind of where my head is at on any given day, I'll I'll I'll, I'll kind of direct that moment differently in different groups or different classes. And and I, I'm sort of of the. I think that's healthy. I think so too. Uh, and and <clears throat> it, 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 well, it goes back to your to your thing about your serving the people that you're working for. I love directing improv. And part of the reason why I love directing it is because it, it's your, your part of it is simply you're a facilitator. Part of it is, is you're either going off of what people want to be working on, or your job is to kind of harness the best of the people in the room with you and, and kind of isolate. All right, what is it that these people do really well? What is their point of view and how can I help to foster more of it? And how can I help to kind of, uh, um, go with it, you know, and, and just bring out, you know, unlock this, you know. Um, so I do think that that kind of like, you have to be flexible in your thinking as an improv director and you constantly, you can have a bunch of pet theories or a bunch of different tools or a bunch of different maps available that hopefully you can pull out in a jam and will help to get you on, on path. But part of the thing that's so exciting about doing it is when you throw that stuff out and you're just looking at something that's working and you're just helping to push it into working more to, to be the most, how far can you take this thing that you're doing right now before it buckles apart? And then that's where the lights go out. Basically. I like that. I like what you're saying. And I, I, I agree that the map is something for when you're in a jam. Yeah. You know, we've all got forms and tricks and maps and things. And, uh, you know, you, you try to do something original and you try to be flexible and you try to serve this team and what they need. And sh- yeah, if it's not working, then go to the map. Yeah. I think that's the last resort. Yeah. I sometimes I'll be watching scenes where, so, so I, I love grounded realistic scenes and I love stuff that bring a little bit of dramatic weight into shows. And I think that it's a needed energy and it's like a mature thinking energy and it, and it, it, when you can win an audience over and make them feel relaxed and confident and know that they're in good hands and this is a funny show, it's a smart show. Oftentimes there's something really powerful in having those moments of like, okay, now listen to what we have to say. Not that we're saying it for your good, not that we're trying to reform anybody, not that we're trying to teach you anything, but now that we've earned your trust, here's an opportunity to kind of hear live human beings talk about the stuff that's actually on their minds. I love that stuff. And and I love it when you can pull off a show that appears to just be authentically lifelike, but it really isn't. The, those performances create the illusion of real life um, without just replicating real life. Because when you replicate real life, that's when you get, it begins sinking in the middle. You get security cam, mm-hmm. this kind of dr- listless, drifting quality where... That's where fact can throw people off. And they get stuck fabulous. on fact over truth. Great. Can you can you amplify on that, please? Well, I, you know, they say it comes to printing the... Facts or printing the le- what is it? Truth or legend? Or legend print the yeah. legend, yeah. Um, <clears throat> people do get hung up on facts because we might start a scene, you know, where we're really playing ourselves. 
hyper hyper ourselves where to the point where you say, well, I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that because me, Michael Delaney doesn't like that thing. But then that I let that change, though. When I'm playing my hyper self, I take the active or positive choice over the negative choice. Now, I hate mystery meats and I don't eat pastrami. And if you ask me if I'd like a pastrami sandwich, I'm not going to say, no, I don't like that. I'm going to say yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are you going to gonna say yes through the filter of still not liking it, but you're a person who doesn't like it, who's eating it? Or are you going to abandon your real life point of view and just go for it? I'm going to abandon the fact. Okay. And do the thing that's good for the play. Are you going to pretend to an enthusiasm for pastrami sandwiches? Or are you going to ignore that and not fake it? You're just, now you're going to be Michael Delaney. But okay, so you're going to be the alternative universe Michael Delaney Uh who will Uh eat a pastrami sandwich. Uh So now you're taking one step away from factual reality into a more active reality. That's what yesing does. Now, if you habitually say yes and agree, and I think being positive, generally positive, and generally... Uh, what's the word amenable mm-hmm. is a really good idea in Harold in the absence of a premise. Now, if there's a premise, we're all serving the premise. And if it means that I have to be a good guy or a bad guy or a hard ass or a softy, I'll be any one of those things. And I'll make a strong choice to that's all serving that game. That's the, that, that or that unusual thing. But if we're just playing organically and I'm playing the real me, yeah, but I will modify and I'll try to be po- as positive about things as I can because I think that uh, is, um, uh, creates conditions that are more likely to, to create the kind of rhythm and the kind of forward movement that do foster discovery. Mm-hmm. A discovery of unusual thing which then leads to game. Mm-hmm. It's like shots on goal. So I never get hung up on facts. So yeah, if we're having a regular old conversation and you ask me some straight up question and the, 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 the factual answer is no, I'm going to say yes. And it doesn't look any less factual because for someone to pretend they like pastrami is not hard. Mm-hmm. Not hard. Or sausage or whatever. But, meat it, so, but is there a line in that scene at which you would make that choice? What I mean by that is there are certain times in a scene where where having the opinion of no that's fucking bullshit sorry to disagree with you is absolutely a riveting choice to make in that scene absolutely uh, um so so it's not you're not blindly just going along with every single thing there comes a point where you're using kind of artistic sensibility to decide this simply opens up more possibilities by being more active mm-hmm. rather than me being in this passive powerless position of having to say yes to literally every offer <laughs> being thrown my way I like that powerlessness. Yeah, of 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 being uh, pressured, putting the pressure on myself to be as agreeable as I can to the most outrageous things. Mm-hmm. If someone asks me to do an outrageous thing on stage that I would never do in life, I'm going to try my damnedest to do it, and I will probably say yes first and figure out why the hell I did it later. Whether it's something that's illegal, immoral. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> irresponsible. Mm-hmm. These are good things for comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel when you do that, do you feel because, okay, so, so this is something you see all the time in classes. I'm guilty of it myself. You will say yes to something that, that makes you an immoral person, let's say, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, 
and then there's an instinct to immediately justify why you said yes to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that there's something really worthwhile to letting your yes catch up with you, saying yes to it, doing it, feeling for a few moments how it feels to be the person who eats pastrami sandwiches again, and not feeling the need to, to explain to everybody why you made that choice. Again, it depends on the nature of the thing. Right. Some things are unusual in such a way that the audience really needs some kind of justification, some kind of reason before they'll buy into it and before they'll move on. But most things... Uh, the audience is really ready to play ball and they don't need a strong justification of why because they don't know me. They don't know how immoral or uh, irresponsible m- my behavior is or how, how, uh, um, how I feel about illegal behavior. So for me to do something that's uh, uh, something that I wouldn't do, the audience doesn't know me personally. So I can do a lot of, a lot of weird unusual things on stage and not have the audience feel they need a justification. Whereas if it was in real life, my friends would expect one Mm -hmm. like, well, that's out of character for you. Why would Delaney do such a thing? But on stage, the audience is accustomed to seeing people do really outrageous things. And the question is, would somebody do that? Mm -hmm. Not would Lewis Kornfeld do that? Is that some, but something somebody would do? Mm -hmm. Do people beat their friends and wives? Well, yeah. So if we find out you're a wife beater, I wouldn't believe you're a wife beater in real life. I wouldn't want, I'd be disappointed if I heard that were true. But in the scene, uh, that's a healthy thing. If it pops up that you may be a wife beater, you are, and Mm -hmm. you should be that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you may have a justification. And there's maybe it's funny. Maybe that's where in the funniness lies. Maybe. Yeah. But there's also a power in not justifying it immediately. Oh, yes, yes. There, I agree. There's a power yeah, that's in being a, That's the it. point you're making. And I agree. I, I, I like that. I don't think people need to rush to their justifications. And yet yeah, I was kind of trying to back you up on that by saying, yeah, I think a lot of justifications are what I call inherent. Yeah. And by simply the person accepting this thing and then acting upon it that and then making the adjustment in the scene and right. being that kind of person, right. the audience is perfectly uh, the audience doesn't need a hard justification but there are there's plenty of times where we need if we're going to get this silly and if we're going to do this outrageous thing we may need a justification yeah but um i don't think they're overrated but i think they can be overused because justification is just a reason for doing things and what how else is the audience going to cop to the maximum fun of the scene if they don't understand the reason why well yeah I'm sorry to cut you off. As, no, no. as often as not, and there is a, I think that you can sense it in the kind of attention that an audience is giving you that they need more understanding in order to enjoy this party that they've been invited to. And you can sense that uh, they're accepting it. This is fine. I don't need to explain to them why I'm behaving the way that I am. But if, if it's a scene where it's like we're having a conversation, it's a really engaging conversation, it's really fascinating, they're into it for the first 30 seconds. And then you begin to sense that kind of restless energy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it becomes important to establish that we're two uh, detectives on a stakeout having this conversation. And that little bit of context, that little bit of justification now is enough for them to give us another another 90 seconds to stay in this in this 
dialogue that we're having. You kind of like develop a sense, I think, of of when it's important to just clue them in a little bit more on what's going on mm-hmm. so that they dig it with you. I think as often as not, when you see people make justifications in scenes, I'm not talking about really great improvisers. I'm talking about people who are still kind of learning the mechanics of it and trying to mm-hmm. figure it out. As often as not, those justifications are secretly apologies. They're secretly... Uh, um, this feeling of being caught with your pants down doing something and not knowing exactly how to sell it. And so you, 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 you spit out this justification so that everyone will go, Oh, okay, I accept that and move on. But you almost never move on from that apologetic energy. Now it has the same effect as having explained a punchline to a joke. It's kind of like now your behavior isn't working for me anymore because it's so clear to me that you don't believe that behavior, that you're not actually, being that person, you're kind of uh, uh, pretending that person. It really doesn't help the believable factor. You know, when a scene is really, truly original and funny, the audience will believe it even if the performances are terrible. Yeah. Like a, a terrible in terms of sort of acting Right, wise. sure. Yeah. Um, That's one of the best the things about improv is shitty totally acting. You can, you can, they can love you yeah. and love your characters and you could be the shittiest actor. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. it's, I love that. Uh, well, that's, uh, well, that's why comedians like uh, yeah. improv so much. Yeah. They, they're not always the best actors. But um, uh, I call those kind of flimsy justification. I call those qualifiers mm-hmm. where people, yeah, where they're taking pains on stage to to qualify certain things where the question is not, is this something you would do? It's again, is this something people do? So if it turns out in a scene that we find out you're a wife beater or a junkie, you might want to qualify that like, Oh, well she hit me first or I had a hard childhood. You know, if there's a 14 year old junkie on stage, the audience doesn't need to know how they came to be that way because we know there are 14 year old junkies out there, but some players will then backtrack sacrifice the energy, the forward thrust of the scene to backtrack and try to and explain why mm-hmm. things that don't need to be explained. Why? Simply because we, if this is a thing that the audience knows happens in the human condition, they'll buy it. But sometimes improvisers start contriving this crap that people just don't do. Even little things like I'm changing subjects now, but this is a pet peeve when people start doing stuff that's unrealistic. Like, Hey, how you doing? I really like your t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Really great. Like, no, it's a fucking black T-shirt. No one cares. No one does that. Improvisers mm-hmm. are endlessly thanking each other for things that people don't thank each other for. Like, thank you for being such a good boyfriend, mm-hmm. which no one has ever said in their life. Yeah. Uh, like, it's really great being married to you. Yeah. Um, there's other ways to get out the exposition that you're married besides, uh, you know, always thanking and compliment. Hey, you're a really great wife. Yeah. You know that? Like, yeah. are these 15 years... Uh, which is a little different than qualifiers. But, but, but it has the exact same energy of now you've given us a reason not to believe you. I think... How about, how about you've, been, you've just given us a reason to be bored by this yeah. scene where you're giving us just bullshit information or, yeah, or just acting and relating to each other in a way that people don't relate to. Yeah. If you're going to act in a, a weird way that's not true to people, then it should be on point. Not bullshit. If you're going to have, if you're going to just have, talk talk to someone, just have a regular conversation with Mm -hmm. somebody, don't, don't try to flower it up somehow to make it interesting or entertaining. Or yeah. that's what, again, that's playing funnily. Well, I think too, a lot of times it's people are terrified of just having a conversation and letting, letting the scene 
occur to them as they're playing it rather than having the the kind of frame already worked out and then filling in the blanks and the, you know what I mean like well, there is a technique to it and some people can't do it so good yeah. so and some people just need to learn the feel of the technique sometimes because it's scary as hell to go into a scene kind of blindly and kind of open and starting off a scene like a lot of people are terrified of starting a scene with a line like uh no no way not going to happen and, and like I happen to love lines like that because there's something they sound believable. They don't necessarily dictate exactly what should be happening. And you make a line like that fast enough that like I, I'll find myself kind of believing the scene before I even know exactly what's going on. It just kind of feels like I leapt into a scene mid progress. And and it takes a little bit of seasoning to learn that you'd be surprised how quickly somebody can respond to that and, and nail a response and just find yourself in a really compelling moment. Mm. I think people are really afraid to do stuff like that or, or, or to start a scene mid conversation or to start a scene by talking about something that they really care about or by start a scene by talking about something that they don't really care about, but they're able to take a different point of view on by, you know, challenging their own. Assumption. I, I think a lot of people feel, are afraid to do that without also letting you know that boy, George, you're such a good boyfriend and, and you've been such a great boyfriend. And now let's have a conversation about our sex life as opposed to we'll just start the fucking conversation about the sex life. Mm-hmm. Let us mm-hmm. figure out that you're George, the boyfriend. And you can figure that out. If you're really good, you could figure that out by the end of the scene and it's perfectly satisfying for people. But I think that that takes it takes, no, but it, it takes if, the experience to feel to feel the fear that's associated with that and not let that fear overpower you and, and stop you from just playing the goddamn scene. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I, you know, I think it really depends on whether the player has a premise in mind or whether it's organic. Yeah. If it's organic, I think that's the time to really give it away and do less. I find all my favorite improvisers do way less. Yeah. Way less than the average improviser. Um, you know, the Ian Robertses and the Stephanie Weirs of the world do, again, they, they uh, are at once three quarters less interesting and 100% more interesting yeah. than your average improviser. Because they're not trying to make every line fucking interesting. We're doing a process here. And there's a certain amount of communication that, that sometimes needs to occur before, that, before the game gets established. And then once the game gets established, that's when they start doing 100% more than the average player. Yeah. Up until what I, that, during that, what I call the discovery phase, top players do less of certain things. They're doing more of other things, but they're doing way, way less. All top people in all fields of art do less of certain things, uh, particularly artists and sculptors, use as few strokes as possible. The amateurs use a lot, a lot, a lot of strokes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I make the argument in class a lot that it's a lot easier to get people to believe you than you think it is. Mm-hmm. And that it, the challenge isn't to make people believe you so much as it is to not give them reasons not to believe you. On the traditional acting stage, it's very difficult. On the improv stage, it's not that hard. Yeah. No. It's hard to be interesting. Being yes. believable on improv is not hard. Yeah. Being believable and interesting and funny is hard. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the game for a second in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, um, as often as not, and uh, this might 
be a semantic difference. I'm not 100% sure. But as often as not, I'll be directing a show or working with a class. And, and there's a scene going on where there isn't really anything unusual to the scene. It's just kind of you're enhancing our understanding of these characters and we kind of get what they want and we get how they're affecting each other. And it's kind of dramatically interesting. And it's a funny enough scene, but there isn't like an unusual thing to it per se. And, and I will find that when I'm directing it, as often as not, when we get to a second beat, I'll just ask them to just pick up where we left off, to not worry about zeroing in or, or being able to articulate what the game they're playing is, to just sense the hot thing. Like, you know what you care about. Give them what they want. Give them what they care about. Put them in the place. Put them in the situation. Put them close to the thing that's going to most affect them. Because for me, so much of the entertaining thing when you're watching a long-form show is you you identify certain things that you associate with these characters. And just on a really primal level, as an audience member, over time you want to see more of the thing that you've identified with them. And you want to find surprising ways to arrive at that thing that you expect them to do. And, and I think that there are some people where the game of the scene is a focal point that you're able to keep in mind uh, um, uh, that enables you to cut out all the inessentials in your thinking and just recognize, okay, this is what I'm playing. And I think for other people, the game of the scene is something that if you ask them to focus on it, you're going to detract from their ability to just kind of simply play a scene. So so I guess what I'm asking is, are there scenes where looking for the game that you're playing, looking for that unusual thing, are there scenes where you don't really have to look for it? I, now, I'm going to qualify it with this. This is why I think this is a semantic issue. Because as much as I, I don't really worry about teaching people how to find the game that they're playing or, or articulating it that way, um, uh, I am always guiding people back towards don't go to the less important thing, go to the more important thing. Don't go to the less active thing, go to the more active thing. It's not so much a thing of articulating how do we now... Because, because I, I think a lot of people will interpret that term to mean, okay, how do I take this realistic thing that I started with and now find a way to make it crazy and play a craziness through it? And sometimes that's exactly what you want from a scene. And there are other times where all you want to see is the dramatic core to this thing play out to its inevitable conclusion over the course of three acts or three beats. Let me say this about this this thing, the unusual thing. Yeah. Someone can be doing a scene, a very successful scene, a scene that has an unusual thing and has a game and heightens without anything being literally unusual. Mm -hmm. Again, you got, we've got to take the spirit of that term. A lot of times the unusual thing is something that's literally unusual. But the main thing is that it's the thing. So uh, it's the thing that makes the scene work. Mm -hmm. And there's some scenes like I've seen, uh, oh, many uh, Nichols and May scenes. They're perfectly believable. You know, they say the difference between comedy and farce is the comedy is farce deals with the impossible. Comedy deals with just the mere improbable. And that's very Nichols and May. They had all these improbable scenes. Nothing literally unusual. Just like a, a Jewish mom talking to her son on the telephone. There's nothing unusual there. It's all the classic stuff that goes on between mothers and sons. But they have an unusual thing, and they do have a game. So unusual thing is just a term that is sometimes literally unusual. Sometimes it's not unusual at all. Um, and game and unusual things are things to be, I think, felt more than labeled. Sometimes mm -hmm. they can be labeled. Often they can't, and I think that's a great sign. 
when people are really discovering this thing that we might call in a reductive fashion the, uh, the unusual thing. Um, I know a lot of times for me, it's, it's, a, it's a feel. You know, you very much feel the game. And I love when I'm directing a group or a, a teaching somebody and they come up with a beautiful scene that's got a great game and none of us can define the game. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, when they transcend uh, uh, labeling. I agree completely. I, it There is always something that makes it interesting and you want to lean into the interesting thing and not yeah. away from it. Yeah. And I also agree, uh, for me, I'm the kind of player where if you ask me to name what it is, I, I'm, I would really struggle to tell you. But you kind of, you know it when it happens. It, you know, what is the feeling for you? How do you, like, how do you recognize it when, when you've found it in your scene? It's just funny. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> no, but but you can smell it. Sometimes yeah. you can smell and I like that use the word leaning this way and leaning that way. And I'm always encouraging people to lean this way and that. And there's certain ways in a scene that you can lean and you can f- sometimes feel it coming, but we got to lean in. Mm-hmm. If we don't lean in, it's not going to happen. But we got to lean in. Whatever's the the most unusual area of the scene is where we lean, lean in. Unusual, active, interesting, connected, all those other terms that you used, mm-hmm. what affects these people, all that. These are just actor habits. If improvisers would just take a handful of acting classes, they would really feel through doing scene work and learning the terminology how important it is to lean into these things for uh, all the dramatic purposes. And by dramatic, I'm also talking about comedic and mm-hmm. improv- improvisatory. Yeah, I, yeah, cool. Habits, great, good habits. Stephanie Weir is, a, is like a clinic of good habits, you know, when you watch players like her. Yeah. That do make things important, are always endowing and, and involving and incorporating the other, the other player when she makes strong choices about herself. You know, I mostly saw her in, in doing two-prov with, with Dassey, so that's, that's something where, you know, uh, including the other person is, um, I think, maybe more um, inevitable yeah. in, uh, in, in two-prov. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's those habits of, of leaning in to those places in the scene. And, and uh, again, doing sketch, going back and forth from sketch to improv really helps tremendously. Because in sketch, whatever the, the wrongest thing in the scene is the right thing. Mm-hmm. Everything in a sketch gravitates usually towards what's the most wrong in this scenario just where's the injustice yeah where's the suffering right where's the trouble gonna be uh, where's that horrible thing that's gonna fuck somebody over that's what's right that's what we all need to lean into yeah and in improv you can smell those kind of situations coming if you have experience if you have the time i have three more quick questions for you i got time okay um uh uh first off i just want to talk about the herald for Mm -hmm. another couple of minutes Sure. Um, well, okay, two different questions about the Herald. Um, your angle of attack when you're playing the Herald, because you had mentioned earlier that depending on where you are in the piece, you're thinking differently. The yes. ne- your needs are evolving as the show is evolving to, to its conclusion. On a good day, yeah. Um, so, so can you talk a little bit about your thinking process or, or what you are encouraging people to think of? Where, what is your plan of attack when you're in a first beat? What is your plan of attack in a second beat? Where are you in a third beat? Where are you in an opening? How are you adjusting the way that you're thinking about the show? Well, I, I think it's a balance between the, cre- what, uh, the creative mind and the receptive mind. The receptive mind has to be really, really open 
good good actors who aren't great but have really good technique can get away with being selfish actors and still come off effective. But some actors just can't be, they just won't let themselves be gotten to as much. Or some, I'm talking about straight actors, traditional Mm. actors, or they make choices and they really stick to that choice rock hard and they're not flexible. Mm. Um, I like acting with people who, who are a little more flexible and, uh, because I think they're really giving themselves over to the moment and really listening and not sticking to the choice they made last night when they were studying their script, but what's happening now mm-hmm. in the moment and the nuance of what's happening in the moment. And I think those kind of actors who make the choices beforehand and aren't flexible enough are not enough in touch with their receptive mind and the receptive side. They're too much in their creative mode. So in an improvisation, obviously you have to have frothy doses of both, of that, that creativity where you're putting it out there. Creative mind being initiations, really participating in the opening, being uh, fearless and active in group games, stepping out in third beats and initiating when you don't have an idea and mm-hmm. when you don't know what's going on, when you may not understand all the games, but calling them back anyway, initiating anyway, or making strong surprising initiations for the stuff, the scenes that you do have a handle on. All that, the creative mind. Then there's that, the receptive mind. And I think uh, there's different phases in the Herald where the, the subconscious, where I like to try to let the subconscious be the guide instead of my, my conscious mind. I think the main areas for the subconscious is, well, mainly the opening. I think the opening is the time where anything goes, there are no mistakes, you can't fuck it up, the opening, really anything, any utterance you want to make. If you want to lay down on the floor and start rolling around like a fish, roll around like a fish. You can't, it's, 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 they tend to be very non-linear. So that's the time to really let the subconscious fly. You know, if you give me a line, a smart line, something, and I want to just let my subconscious fly and be like an infant or be like a fish man, I can be a fish man. And it's good. It's healthy. For the opening. Then after the opening, we get to the area that requires the, I think, the most. So that's the most creative mind. We just let it open, open the opening. Just let it fly. Robin Williams style. Whatever's, mm-hmm. whatever's in your brain, let it out. Then once we hit, get to those first beats, I think that's the time to be most in the receptive mind. Because the first beats, if there's anything sacred in the Herald, they're it. Um, because the whole Herald is predicated on that. Everything in Harold is predicated on something else. So there is this degree of servitude. You know, in a perfect Harold, on your best Harold, if you look back over your life, say that was my best Harold, you probably served the, the opening, you probably served the suggestion, and you probably served those first beats later on. Although to contradict that, I don't believe any second beat owes anything to a first beat. Mm-hmm. If those second and third beats can serve and honor and heighten and build from that first beat, that's the ideal. That's the habits we want to create. However, it doesn't always go that way. And if you have a turd of a first beat that you hated, do something else. No second beat has to do anything. If you want to abandon your first beat, cut it loose, start something else in your second beat, or have a very thin connection between the second beat and the first beat if it wasn't working for you for any reason, I think that's fine. But ideally, naturally, the second beat really is like a spiritual sequel or con- spiritual continuation, if not literal uh, continuation in some way of, of the f- first beat. I don't like second beats that pick up precisely where the first beat left off. 
because that takes the dash out of the time dash. That's mm-hmm. just that's just pausing and starting again. I think uh, you know it's much more interesting uh, to to take and do something with it. So you know these three beats that stack upon each other. You know the first beats that then come back that second and third time. I think require a certain amount of sometimes of maybe giving it away and not taking all the laughs that you might if it was just a standalone scene in order to produce the kind of scene that's going to lend itself to a second beat that's funnier, that actually heightens and becomes exponentially funnier than the first one. And then the third one, exponentially funnier than that. And once you get the connectivity in, in the third beats, that's when people start having cathartic, (laughs) spiritual, uh, kind of rapturous experiences as an audience member and as a player. And I think the third beat then is that the third beats when we're ready for concrescence, for the things to to grow together and come together, for these all these different elements in the Herald to grow together. Um, I think that then takes needs a return to the subconscious to 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 try to tap into that. I I'm not thinking logically. I'm not making purely logical moves here. In a second beat, I'm going to really think. Just use my gut mm-hmm. as to what I think is funny. And if I want to do a second beat that's in contrast to the first one, and that's why it's funny, or a, a continuation of the same characters or, quote, story, you know, uh, kind of revisiting, you know, the same sort of thread, I don't, think it, I don't think it matters. I think it depends on how you, what's the best way to serve. I think going, uh, same characters are going, quote, analogous. I think it makes a difference as long as you're serving the scene best. Mm-hmm. But there is these parts of the brain and, 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 and which does serve best. If someone else initiates a group game, I'm just going to go receptive and just take, just receive, receive, receive what that person has to offer. And if I don't understand the game, it doesn't mean I can't play it hard. Um, or maybe, I'm not, may, maybe I may not like the, the game. Maybe it's not my cup of tea. But if it's not my cup of tea, I'm going to play it as hard and as well as I possibly can and just try to, in those group games, just let the shit fly. Uh, again, third beats, there's connections to be made and how to discover those connections I think comes in a variety of ways. Some connections are conceived on the wall. Some connections are conceived through the process after you've gone off the wall, come off the back wall, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so the receptive mind needs to be really wide open in those third beats to be available to the, the, these connections and mashups being made between my scene and those other scenes. Um, and these are muscles. These are specialized muscles that we develop. I think, uh, I think the more you're conscious of them, the more you develop them. We do develop them just through practice. Mm-hmm. But if you think about them, Connections are made, but they got to be fine. They got found. They got to be sought sometimes. Sometimes they fall in your lap and they happen very organically. And I think a lot of times they need to be sought. And they're sought not necessarily mostly on the back wall. I mm-hmm. think they're sought after we initiate. Mm-hmm. We get out there. We're in the throes of the scene. And then it comes to us. So making sure to keep that part of the mind open and receptive, I think, is, is very important. I try to keep it open all, all the time, but yeah. particularly in those third beats and just be an, an infant-like thing in, in, the, in the opening to let 
all notions and utterances fly. That's an exciting way to think about it. And it seems kind of counterintuitive because by the time you arrive at a third beat in a Harold, you would assume that now the, the play and discovery are gone and now it's just about kind of intellectually making the right, okay, this connects with that. And, and it, it becomes sort of the grunt work of playing. There's something actually kind of thrilling to that idea of stepping off the back line, maybe with an idea in hand, but you don't a hundred percent know how this is going to come off. Oh yeah, it, And you're still in that kind of newborn way of you're as surprised as anybody at how this how these connections happen. Craig Kukowski talked about that as the dream quality of Harold, that there's a lot of time in third beats. Very dreamlike. It's like dreamlike. Things connect in a way that really aren't logical, but that satisfy, that musically they feel correct. In a dream space, they feel correct. Yeah, that's a good word for it, is the the musicality, Um, because that transcends labeling. Yeah, It's a feel. The music, is you feel it or you don't, but you can't uh, describe it. yeah, with words. Um, I think it is a very dreamlike state, especially the top and bottom of the how the two poles, mm-hmm. top and bottom are, are where I think it's most welcome. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a very interesting way. Huh? Oh, but the subtleties and all what's of just doing scene work and all what's involved in scene work is like a whole, that's a whole volume. Yeah. Just in there. One more question before I let you go. You've been on on uh, uh, arguably two of the most legendary groups in uh, New York improv um, uh, and two very ambitious groups, two groups that aimed to be the very best that they could possibly be. Uh, um, this is a ludicrously broad question, but what... What makes for a really outstanding improv ensemble? What are the what are the behaviors that a group should be working at uh, to go beyond just strong individual improvisers to people who are really creating together something original for them and something exciting for an audience to be watching? What makes what are the qualities that have made groups that you have have been excited to show up to be a part of? I think it's the uh, listening. Mm-hmm. Listening's uh, probably maybe the biggest one. Like naturally, you want people who are f- funny um, and talented. That that kind of goes without saying. Um, you know uh, how funny you are. It's almost like something you're sort of born with. You know, you can you can do things to enhance the natural sense of humor that you have, uh, or to dampen it. But in general, people are either born with humor, uh, yeah, with a keen sense of humor or not. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think listening is the big one. How you listen. Because uh, listening is all about being changed. And we, want, we change and affect each other, you know. To, to be a good ensemble, to really pull off ensemble, means you've been affected by the other people on stage maximum. And when you listen, you just get changed. The harder you listen, the more it, it destroys the things that you had in mind. There's just as much destruction as creation going on with listening. The people who listen the hardest get more of their ideas destroyed than anybody. Hmm. Um, because if I'm listening to you and giving over to you, I'm not doing what I had in mind. It can't be both. We're not that psychic. So, uh, and change is what it's all about. You see, game is about uh, the constant and the changing. Um, the constant being the habit and the changing being novelty. Everything I've read these theories about everything in the universe is this balance between novelty and habit. 
The earth has a habit of going round and round and round the same way, but that's not going to last forever. It's going to get novel at some point. The way the earth's rotating, it's going to change. Mm. It is changing in tiny, tiny bits. Every time there's a big earthquake, it changes just a little bit. I think game is about sameness and change. There's the constancy of game. Any character, we know what they're going to do. Molly Shannon, she's going to say, I'm 50. Mm-hmm. But how is she? What else is going to go? What context is that in now? What right. context is Mary Gallagher in? She's going to fall. She's going to sniff her armpit. These are the constants. So every sketch, uh, whether it's a character characteristic or whether it's the um, sort of the, the pattern of the sketch, that's the known. And then there's the unknown. We don't know where it's going to go. We know it's going to be more of this thing, the habit. We don't know where it's going to go, the novelty. There's this constant balance back and forth between habit, novel, habit, novel. You do a great first beat and everybody recognizes your character. You come back for a second beat. There's that guy. We know your habits. We know what your habit is. We know what your characteristic is, but we crave something new. We, we don't want a repeat of the first scene. We mm. want to revisit the habits of the first scene, but we want something new to go with it. From a sequel, from a good sequel, of which there are a few, of movies, we want the habit of going back to that world. We want to go to the world of Star Wars, but we want new shit. What do Star Wars fans complain about most about these sequels? Is them dragging out the same shit over and over. We don't want too much habit. We want it to be habitual that we go back to that world, but with new stuff, novel stuff. That's what audiences crave from the next time you do that sketch, whether you're writing for SNL and you're going to do a callback or whether it's a callback within one sketch show that's a live sketch show that you're putting on or whether it's the Herald. There's the habit of that scene, the known, and then there's the new things about it as we move forward, the, the unknown. The, it's all habit, novelty, and the, uh, the known, the unknown. And so a really good teammate is somebody who's open to recognizing your habit and taking that and running with it by helping to bring you to those exciting, unexpected places. By helping, is that sort of, that as we listen to each other and are affected by each other and change each other, we're also looking to protect each other by moving one another, by honoring each other's choices, by completing each other's half-completed thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and all kind of recognizing the thing that makes these the characters that we've come to expect, mm. uh, 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 and maintaining that balance show-wide between expected and unexpected. I think that's, I think you're on it. Yeah, this is all ideal stuff. Yeah. Uh, we we're talking ideals. Um, as far as being a good team, I think playing smart, Dedicating to playing smart and smart translates as real. That there are those times where fucking play it real. Don't be so fucking entertaining. Let's we sometimes you just got to do theater when you're doing Harold. You just got to do the play because mm-hmm. um, underneath every comedy there's a drama and all dramas have humor. Um, so even if the the drama part of my improv scene is only one percent and that one percent is hidden, it's still there. It's underneath there. Um, and for us to me to be able to look my teammates in the eye and really talk to them and know that they're there and available and that I'm not always playing their idea that I get to play with them. Some people I can't look at in the eye cause it just makes me laugh. I can't look at Shannon in the eye. She makes me laugh. I just, I start late. I don't know. Last couple of years I've been cracking up 
if I look at Shannon in the eye, because I know she's going to say something fucking bonkers. I just know it's coming. Mm-hmm. And it makes me laugh before she says it. I care a little less now that I let myself break on stage. I never broke on stage when I was younger. Never. Because I gave a shit. Mm-hmm. And I think not giving a shit might be a good sign these days. So I don't, I don't know what it is that makes the great team. I certainly have been lucky enough. I just picked the people that I thought were the funniest, smartest, best actors, funniest people. But, um, you know, doing it together, really doing it together and being unafraid to go to those places, to those undiscovered places and trying to make it a discipline to go to those undiscovered original places has been the key for me. Hmm. But I'd say for all y'all out there, surround yourself with greatness. Get on a team with, just be around good people. Surround yourself with good people. Whether you're a mere audience member or a volunteer or a light person or a person in the cast, be around them. Be in the same room with them. Michael Delaney, pleasure talking, man. Thanks a lot. It's been too. great. Thanks, Thanks, Lewis. Thanks, uh, Evan. Uh, when can people see you perform next? Stepfathers at UCB Chelsea every Friday at 9 o'clock. Check it out. Reserve tickets early, my friends. Uh, UCBtheater.com is that website. Thanks again. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. This has been the podcast. A couple of other big thanks. First off to our producer and today's engineer, Evan Ford Barden, to our regular engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, to our executive producer, Ed Herbstman, and to all of you fine people for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please give us a couple of starred reviews on iTunes or whatever your platform happens to be. We would certainly appreciate it. And thank you once again for listening. Huge thanks to our guest today, Michael Delaney. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks, everyone. Bye now. Bye, friends. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by The Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.